I'm thrilled to today's guest. Rick Riley uh, is a sports writer legend, sportscaster legend, one of the most important voices in sports in my lifetime. Um, he is a member of the National Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame. Um, he is a contributing uh, columnist for the Washington Post. His years and, and his contributions to ESPN have, have been legendary. He's got author of 15 books. His new book is uh, So Help Me Golf, Why We Love the Game. A uh, lot to talk about today. Thanks for being here, sir. Do you remember the show we were on? Yes, we did. We did a pilot in 2000 and something, 2000, I'm going to guess 12, 13, 14. Jeff Circle was still at CNN for called Get to the Point. It was a panel show at night and they had a bunch of rope. They tried out different people. You and I were on there and you were just reminding me off off camera, off screen, whatever this is, that one of the people was Kaylee McEnany, who went on yes. to be his Trump's who, press course, secretary. Yeah, I, I Jesus, what a cat. Stephanie Rule was on that. Gary Vanderchuk, uh, Jason Taylor, the football player. It was it was a potpourri of characters, if you will, and of outspoken folks. None of it worked. None of it worked. But it, we, we, we tried. We tried. Uh, the new book is, is fantastic. We've got so much to talk about. What kind of really stuck with me about you and doing, doing a little homework is just your dad, your relationship with your dad, how it informed you, how it informed your relationship with golf, how it turned you into a writer. Um, your dad was, well, tell the story. Dad was an alcoholic and an Irish tenor, and I, I just am still so kind of, I have chills in kind of the arc of your relationship with your dad. Yeah, so this is a, this book, is, So Help Me Golf, is a, a sort of a, sort of a mini um, a sort of story of my life, but it, he was a drunk, and he was a mean drunk, and um, for most of my childhood, he would come home drunk from golf. And, and when he was really drunk, you could hear that he hadn't taken his spikes off. That sound of spikes on sidewalks still gives me kind of a queasy stomach because we knew, you know, stuff was going to get broken. We were going to, there was going to be yelling. And, you know, you're seven years old. You go out and you, you hide or do you defend your mother? And I was the youngest by far. And one time I, I went out and tried to defend her and I, he ended up falling on me. And I'll never forget that. And he was just a very bad drunk. And for that reason, I hated golf. But I also became the, Donnie, there's a thing in alcoholic families called the mascot. Yeah, the younger, it's usually the youngest one. The youngest yeah, guy's yeah. the funny one. Hey, if we all laugh, no one's breaking anybody's nose, you know? So that became me. And they would laugh at me and I'd tell stories and do impressions. And I really think that's how I got this I, feeling that I could be a, a funny sports writer or a writer or screenwriter, author. And I think it was because of that. But I hated golf because of this. But my brother, who was six years older and who essentially raised me, um, said, hey, I just got dad's old clubs. You get mine. And I'm like, I don't want golf clubs. And he goes, no, you're going to love it. And I'm like, no, dad's out there. I'm not going. And Because I thought it was all drunk guys. And he took me there. You're going to love it. And we go to the range. And he's hitting these shots, like falling against the Rockies in Boulder, Colorado. And everyone's nice to each other. And no one's dunked drunk and I got to hit shots and he taught me to play and I developed this crush on golf that I probably is unhealthy but I'm really just obsessed by it I think because I got it back when I never thought I would you know I, I'm I want to talk about how you kind of reconcile with your dad how your dad eventually went to AA and and the, like that kind of a car ride back where he kind of told you everything right I, so I took him to the masters he said you take me to the masters and by then he had stopped drinking. He stopped drinking at about 60. 
And I think it was a couple of years after that. And he was sober. He was sober and he was a nice guy again, which I'd never met this nice guy. And I said, sure, I'll take you to the Masters, knowing, Donnie, that when you land in Atlanta, you have a two-hour drive to Augusta. And I got all my courage up because he was scary. None of my brother, my sisters, they, they couldn't talk to him. But I was going to face up to it. And on the ride, I said, why were you such a terrible dad? Why did you break mom's nose? Why did you break things? Why were you never? I, I played baseball my whole life, never came to a game. He goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I just, I didn't know I was a drunk. All I cared about was the next drink. And he must have said, I'm sorry, 25 times. Turned out he'd been married before World War II. And when he came back to be with his wife, she wouldn't come out of his her mother's house. And he was really hurt by that and really started drinking hard. And I mean, it's no excuse, but I did get to know the man. And then we were fine. Uh, and then we were fine. And I got to tell you, when he, when he was saying sorry over and over, I cried like I was seven years old again. And I, kept, I remember I kept saying, it wasn't fair. And that was kind of my seven-year-old coming back and saying, it wasn't fair what you did to us. And he knows it wasn't. He knew it wasn't fair. And, but he did it anyway. And uh, he's gone now. But that did heal me. And it really uh, helped me a lot going forward. That one two-hour ride. And it also informed you as a dad, the kind of dad you ended up being to your kids that you kind of learned. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be that. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I went to every game, I went to every practice. I coached most of their sports and I'm sure they were like, God, back off. But they don't know what it's like, you know, being scared of your dad and never seen him until he's drunk. That was, so they're, they're now great dads too. And, but uh, it was just it was so wonderful to have a grandkid. And I remember he is just, you know, I was babysitting this kid, his name's Elio, and he was one and a half. And I got him this plastic golf ball and a plastic uh, golf club, and he's whacking it around the kitchen, you know, and the ball's bouncing. And one hit me, and I looked at him and looked at the ball, and he broke up laughing. And I said to myself, kid, you're going to have so much fun with this game, you're going to wish you were twins. And you don't have to be a fight ref, and you don't have to be in the middle of fights, and there's not going to be screaming. And uh, I'm happy for him. Before we, we're going to dive into the book, before we do, uh, I, just some of the other characters that you've covered that just, you know, one that always fascinated me was Brian Bosworth. Uh, talk, to, talk to me about your Brian Bosworth uh, work that you did with him. Well, I wrote a book with well, Brian well, that's Bosworth. What I'm, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think he read it. I don't think he read his own book. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I finally said to him, I said, you know, uh, there should be a rule. You got to read one book before you write one. But he was this Oklahoma linebacker who had a mohawk and he would purposely throw up on the guy in front of him when he uh, early in the game just to set the tone. He would eat all this gross food. So he'd throw up with odor on the guy. <laughs> uh, he would sit in the shower in a, in a uh, metal chair for an hour. He, uh, he worked at Chevrolet and purposely hung a bolt inside a car door frame so that it would drive the mechanics crazy trying to find it. He was, he was really clever. I always said he was Madonna with bigger shoulder pads because he was constantly recreating his image. But he was all juiced up. And he was one of the greatest college linebackers I've ever seen. He had 22 tackles against Miami. Uh, but it turns out it was all steroids. And when he went to Seattle, if you remember, he went to Seattle. Yeah. He was constantly injured because his body really couldn't keep that up, which happens with steroid users. And so then he comes out the, in this ESPN 30 for 30 thing saying, Rick Riley made it all up. 
<laughs> I said, wow, you're the same guy that would call me after the first draft and go, I got to say more stuff. I want more people pissed off. Took us four drafts before he was satisfied that it was going to piss off enough people. Is he still alive? Yeah. yeah what's he's he doing the, now? He, acts, he does ads now. I think he's in Dr. Pepper ads. He's the, you'd recognize him. He's, he, he turned out once he, once he got off juice, turned out to be a pretty good actor, kind of a fun guy, but he was still, he was so full of shit. I mean, he was unbelievable. <laughs> And Charles Barkley, one of my favorites, who's now obviously become just a brilliant sportscaster, uh, analyst, I don't know, sportscaster. Talk to me about life with Chuck. My favorite guy in the history of all my years. I've been doing this, what, 46 years now. He's my favorite guy I've ever covered. He's the smartest. He has a photographic memory. He remembers everyone. Like, I've been with him just out and about. And I remember two gals came up to us, and they go, Charles, Charles, you won't remember us. And he goes, yes, I do. I do remember you. Uh, Taylor, I signed a basketball for you. And Amber, I signed a hat for you. And it was in Salt Lake City. And they're like, oh, my God. Wow. He's that kind of guy. He always asks about my kids. He, he sends texts on birthdays and stuff. He is the greatest, smartest guy. The only thing you can't do with Charles is rub his head. If you <laughs> rub his head, you're going to be trouble. He hates it when people rub his head. I mean, I went all over Barcelona for those Olympics, and every night he and I'd go out, and there'd be 200 people following him, and people would try to rub his head, and that's when he would get mad. I remember once he threw a guy. Do you remember this? He threw a guy through a plate glass Plus window. window. Yes, yes, yes. I remember that. At an Orlando sports bar. So I, <laughs> I called him up and said, let me guess. The guy's rubbing your head. He was rubbing my head, Rick. It was terrible. I hated it. I said, yeah, but you can't throw a guy through a window. I mean, he's going to sue you for a million dollars. Don't care. I said, well, you, there's got it. You have some regret in this. And he goes, I do got one regret. And I said, what's that? And he said, I wish we'd have been on the second floor. <laughs> he's so good on TV. You can't take your eyes off. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see the new show with him and Gail King. That's a, I mean, Chris Licht is a buddy of mine who's running CNN now. And I think it's, an, it's a good swing. I think it's going to be an interesting. Uh, the challenge is a weekly on a cable network because that's not the way people view cable. How does he have time? My son is a big ad, national ad writer. He wrote a bunch of those mayhem ads and stuff. And he works with Charles. Charles, is, he says it's hard to get Charles because he's constantly shooting ads. How's he going to have time for Gail King? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. Interesting to see. He'll get it done, though. He'll get it done. I'm, I'm you know, I, I've only, I interviewed him once on my old CNBC show. We did him for an hour. And I was very taken with him. And it's really nice to hear what you said because I never got to know him the way you got to know him. But I've just always been a fan. So that's always here. Yeah, just the opposite of Tiger. Yeah. Tiger. Great game, lousy guy. All he wants to do is tell dirty butt jokes. He's terrible with fans. He only hangs around with his high school and college friends. He finally made a friend after his divorce with Justin Thomas. He's finally lightening up a little. What I mean, here's a guy that could have owned the world, you know? The whole world yeah. could have loved yeah. this guy. Yeah. And I guess they do love him, but uh, he's, he's just, he was, I think he was raised by a guy that was so suspicious of anyone in the public eye that they would just, huddle together and, and say, screw everybody. In fact, they used to have a saying, I remember him and Errol, we came, we conquered, we got the fuck out of town. Yeah. They, they, didn't want, they didn't want to do, had anything to do with anybody, any people that ran the tournament, no thank you notes. I mean, Arnold Palmer would come to a golf tournament and if, you, if he used your locker, he would leave you four dozen balls, four golf gloves, four shirts, and a handwritten thank you note. I mean, 
Tiger's not like that. You see, you it comes everything you're saying makes it comes across that way. And what's interesting is he's obviously made a ton of money from Nike, just basically, you know, his products, but he hasn't been an endorser. You would think this guy would have been the opposite of Barkley. Barkley's so likable, so he ends up so you never saw Tiger doing ads for anything other than just his, you know, him in a Nike ad, but you never really saw him endorsing stuff because he just wasn't likable. Uh, well, he, he did. He did have a lot of ads before he slept with fourteen pancake waitresses. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> that that kind of hurt his image. But even now, you'd think he'd get a lot of oh, ads. Oh, I mean, well, well, Arnold Palmer was doing ads mostly later in his career. Is when he became a great spokesperson. Dude, he was 70, 70 something years old, making forty million dollars in ads, according to Forbes. Yeah, and. Really, the only guy that was right with him was Phil. And then Phil stepped on it. Phil blew it. He, he decided to go work for a bloody monarchy, a family monarchy in Saudi Arabia that beheads protesters, probably funded 9-11, uh, disappears gays. And he's like, oh, no, I'm doing it for the good of the game. Really? I checked. There's nine golf courses in Saudi Arabia with grass on. So what good are you doing over there? You, you wanted you wanted two hundred million bucks is what you wanted, you know. I or mean, you want to pay off some gambling debts? I don't know why you did this. He could have had Nick Faldo's job. Yeah, that paid like probably fifteen million a year. Could have had all his ads. Donnie, he was on top of the world. He just won the PGA. Fifty-one years old. He'd never been more popular. That's I, 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 that. That's have you spoken to any of the other guys that signed on for that atrocity and kind of pushed them in the way you push Phil? Uh, I mean, Phil. Phil, that part really bothered me. I can see a guy 50 years old, Pat Perez, who's at the end of his career, and they're going to hand him $30 million. Patrick Reed is, is another lousy guy. We call him, uh, the, the caddies call him table for one because nobody likes him. So I could see him going. Brooks Kepka's always been trouble. He's a very hard guy to like. I was really disappointed in Dustin Johnson, but I'm not sure he even knew that where Saudi Arabia was. Right. I mean, <laughs> I once write that uh, I once wrote that uh, Dustin Johnson is so dense, light bends around him. <laughs> I saw I saw his agent the next week. I'm like, dude, I'm, it was Dustin mad about that, and he goes, he has no idea what you're. What talking even meant? He didn't even understand it. That's amazing. So he's that, so he's a he's a pretty clever guy. So let's talk about one of my favorite people. I say with tremendous tongue in cheek, Donald Trump. Um, your your book uh, basically kind of talking about his really surprising golfing habits, given who he is. I mean that that he's just not the straightest shooter in the world. Imagine that. We're talking about this guy the day because this will run in a couple of weeks. He was just found guilty for sexual abuse, and it's stunning that it probably won't cost him one vote. This is this is a, this is a conversation for that I have with my other panelists. I mean my other guests about the insanity how fucking people still follow this guy, this heinous, heinous, heinous man. Let's talk about his golfing a little bit. Okay, well, the book is called Commander in Cheat, and it started uh, when I played with him one day, and um, he was telling me he'd won 12, at that point, he's won 12 club championships. He says 22 now. Now it's 22. Now it's 22. Now 22. Yeah. I'm looking at this swing, and he's like a 10 or 12 at best. Right. It's real flat. He can't putt. He chips like Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> I mean, he, he can make some putts, but he's chipping is terrible. And then I realized the caddies were throwing it out of the bunkers. They were throwing it out of the long grass. And in fact, I found out later, his caddies have to carry four inch green tees. So he tees it up in the rough. Oh my God. He tees it up in the rough. So I'm like, no way, Donald. There's no way you won 12 club championships. He goes, yeah, I did. You know how? I'm like, how? He goes, every time I open a new golf course that I've bought, 
I play the first round by myself and I declare that the club championship. <laughs> wow. That is so diabolically clever. So when he starts running for president, he, he got in 2016, he was saying, you got to vote for me because I'm a winner and I beat all the best guys. And these are the young guys, no strokes in the club championships. Well, I'm a winner. Get on board. And I'm like, you have, you're a big fat liar. And so I called Sports Illustrated. I said, I'd like to write about all the ways this guy lies about how good he is at golf. But then I realized the more I looked into it, that it was a whole book. These guys were telling me, oh, yeah, he did this at Trump Bedminster. Uh, he was in Philly, calls in at the end of the tournament, says, hey, well, who won? And the guy said, Lonnie Schwartz shot a 74. Oh, I shot 72 here today. I'm the champ. <laughs> he won one in North Korea when he was talking to Kim Jong-un. They held it in uh, at Trump Miami, Trump, um, Trump International in uh, by Mar-a-Lago. And he comes back, he sees the guy who's playing with his kid. And he says, uh, nice job, but you didn't win because you didn't have to play me. And the guy's like, ah, sure, sure. And he goes, no, we're going to play right now nine holes for the championship. And he's like, no, I'm playing with my kid. And besides, I already won. No, it's his club. So the guy goes, this guy's name was Ted Virtue. He was the money guy behind Green Book. So anyway, Ted Virtue and his son have to play him nine holes. And the kids want, and the kids playing along, the young guy. And uh, the young guy hits it on the green. Trump hits one in the water. And Ted hits it on the green. But by the time they get to the green, the kid's ball is in the water and Trump's is on the green. And the kid's like, what, what happened here? And uh, the caddy goes, well, yours rolled into the... <laughs> yours rolled into the water. Well, how did Mr. Trump's get on the green? It must have hit a rock. <laughs> and so he ended up um, losing to uh, Trump in this way and declared himself the champion, and Ted Virch's name came off. Lovely fellow. Lovely fellow. Shocker, shocker, sh shocker. The, the only reason I wrote it was because so many people don't understand what he's like. Yeah. We've known him in boxing and the USFL football when he lied. Uh, We've known him a million. He's just full of crap, but he's fun, right? Yeah. He's a cartoon character. Yeah, he's a, he's a lounge act. You, you, you enjoy being around him. Yeah, right, right. right. But now they were believing all his bullshit. Yeah. So, I, so I, I found this as a vehicle to show people golf isn't political. No. But look, he says he's a three handicap. If he's a three handicap, Queen Elizabeth pole vaults. Yeah. There's no freaking way. Yeah. I mean, I've played against him, and there's no way 10. Uh, Tiger says he's about an 11. Um, Ernie Ellis says he's about a 12 or 11. Annika Sorenstam said she's about a 9 or 10. And yet, when you go on his uh, handicap page, which anybody can look at, he's he jerry-rigged all the slopes, jerry-rigged all the ratings, posts about once a year, and it comes out to 2.9, and people buy this crap. I want to talk to you about a new, really cool, super healthy, super delicious meal service called Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you get fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. You get two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factors restaurant-quality meals that are ready to eat and heat whenever you are. Pancakes, smoothies, uh, no prep, no mess meals. Factors meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prep in cooking or cleanup needed. It's flexible for your schedule. 
Um, Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for a fast premium option with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. So stop doing takeout. These are meals that are completely put together for you. All you got to do is heat them up. They'll be delivered. Head to factormeals.com slash Donnie50 and use code Donnie50 to get 50% off. That's code Donnie50 at factormeals.com slash Donnie50 to get 50% off. Mine are coming to me next week. I can't wait to try them. I hear great things about them. But Factor, this is good stuff. It tastes great. It's easy to use. It's healthy. I really, really, I really endorse it. Factor, go get them. The book got a lot of coverage during the campaign because a lot of people picked up on it. You know what? This is, yes, it's golf, but this is, you probably never get a better x-ray into a guy's core soul than just these stories about him as a golfer. Yeah. We were on the bestseller list for six weeks, or as Trump would say, six years. <laughs> One last quick Trump story. I, re- I remember uh, when I, he took me around his course once. This is Rick Riley. Uh, he's president of Sports Illustrated. And I'm like... <laughs> just a writer i'm not the president this is rick riley he owns sports illustrated like no time no i finally said why are you lying about me he goes it sounds better so then who comes along but lee trevino and lee trevino what'd you shoot out here today and trevino goes ah not that good 73 and let me introduce you to some people and there's the lee trevino winner of 10 majors and i'm looking at trevino he won six just shot a 68 out here and Trevino's like, what? And then the next, and the next guy, Lee Trevino, won 12 majors, just shot a 65. <laughs> I saw Trevino later, and he goes, I had to get out of there before I set the course record, man. <laughs> I, you know, I knew Trump a long time before <clears throat> he morphed into this, what he is now. And I always used to say he's one of the great quantifiable liars of all time. He's building a building, and the building is 40 stories. So 73 stories. He attached, he quantifies it. That's, that's the, he, he gives, makes the lie so acute. And that it's just, it, it, there was always a number attached to it. It's not just, this is the tallest building and this is the, no, this is 77 stories. I mean, it's just incredible. The, the hilarious thing about him, because his friends off the record told me, we call him double down. Because you catch him in a lie, he yeah. just makes it worse. Yeah. He does it, he, he does it worse. He said, uh, and they, they all said the same thing. When we catch him cheating at golf in a money game, which is pretty easy, he always says, look, I cheat on my wife. I cheat on my taxes. You don't think I'm going to cheat at golf? Yeah. Which is kind of funny, but also reprehensible. So let's talk about Help Me Golf. It's a love letter uh, to the sport. Why Why do you love golf so much? Why is this? You, I, I know where it started for you with your dad, but what is it? You had a great line about the game, about kind of you kind of you play where it, where from where it lands, where the lie is. That's what life is, right. basically. I love, I love it because golf is like bicycle shorts. It reveals a lot about a guy. Right. <laughs> and, and, and Arnold Palmer used to tell me this. He said, I never play golf. I never go into a business deal with anybody until I play golf. I said, why? He said, in four hours, you find out if they're a cheat, if they're funny, if they're easy to get along with, if they lose their temper. And and he said, you know, I've, I've gotten out of deals after having played golf with them. So I love that part of it. The thing I really love, though, is it never seems to matter what you shoot. It's always the stories that happen. And like I, all my baseball stories end at 18, but my golf stories – I've played with the same guys for 50 years now. And there's so many great stories. So my favorite, though, is what happened one day at La Hinch in Ireland. 
So La Hinch is this little tiny seaside course and a goat follows you around and it has one hole that's a blind par three. So it's a par three for people that don't play golf. It's just about a 150 yard hole and you hit it on the green. But this had a big hill in front of it so you couldn't even see the green. And they had a white rock that you had to aim at. So in one day in 1997, four guys made holes in one in an hour and 36 minutes which is the greatest statistical craziness ever. And uh, so the bar that night, so the, led, the the tradition in golf is if you have a hole in one, you got to buy everybody in the bar a drink. Sure. Well, that night at the Lynch bar, four people are buying everybody four drinks and the people from town are in and the caddies got in there somehow and the goats and I don't know. It's nuts in the bar, right? The bartender is just making his whole rent money for two two months in one night. And until his wife comes through the door, holding the ear of their six-year-old son, and the and the wife drags him, drags the son behind the counter, and the wife's and the bartender's making drinks. Like, what are you doing here? And she says to her son, "You tell your dad what you did this fine day." And the kid says, "Oh, I was putting balls in the hole. He was, <laughs> he, was he was running out." From behind a tree, <laughs> the hole because he likes seeing sixty-year-old white guys jumping on each other like secretariat and and, and ripping their shirts off like Brandy Chastain. He just thought it was so fun, and so the bartender's like, "Oh crap!" And he didn't know what to do, and he he's not going to say anything. No. And, the, and the wife's like, "Aren't you going to do anything to the kid?" And he goes, "Yes," and he kissed him. <laughs> That's a great story. Some of the stories, got, some of the characters in the book, the 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 PGA guy who's Robin Banks to to kind of support his gig. Nobody believes me, but you can look it up. In 1977, there was a guy on tour called Ricky Meisner uh, out of Maryland, and in those days, this is probably before your time, but in the 70s, there was a thing called Rabbit. So, like a hundred rabbits would come to the course on Monday, and about ten would get through, nine or ten, and then they'd play Thursday. But if you didn't get through, it was on to the next town and a week to kill. And you try to try to make ends meet. Well, Ricky Meisner was not doing well as a rabbit. And so uh, he was starting to live in his car. He had a hibachi in his trunk and he would cook at campgrounds and stuff. And finally, he's completely out of money, but he doesn't want to give up because he's got a wife and kids. So after he missed um, the Monday qualifier, that next morning, he put on a fake mustache, a wig. Uh, he had a gun with no bullets in it, a vinyl briefcase, and he changed. Um, he had two license plates that he changed on his on his old Buick, and he robbed a bank that Tuesday. He got something like sixteen hundred dollars. Went on to the next golf town. Now he's staying in the Marriott. He's doing better. Misses again. Tuesday morning comes. Mustache, gun, robs another bank. This time I think it was two thousand. What goes on? Pretty soon he's helping guys out who are down on their luck. Uh, he meets some family whose car broke down, bought him a new car. He robbed 19 banks that year <laughs> on Tuesdays, always on Tuesdays. And like if you're with the FBI, they started calling him the gentleman bandit because he was so polite to the tellers. If you're with the FBI and you see that the towns he's robbing are Pensacola, right. Doral, yeah. Pebble Beach, you're like, <laughs> this guy's on tour. Right, right. Nobody put it together. So anyway, he gets to Tallahassee, July 1977, I think. And uh, he makes it through. He finally gets through the Monday Rabbit. He's on the, he's in the big, uh, big tournament with Trevino and Weisskopf and Nicholas. Leads the tournament 
after the first day. Shoots a 66. And all the press are like, where you been? He goes, I've been working on my game. You know, really, he's been robbing banks. So next day, he's the story. Next day, he shoots 76. Next day, 77. Last day, 80. Gets nothing, makes nothing in the paycheck. So that next Monday, he robs the bank again, but he's so mad and depressed, he forgets to change the license plates. And he gets caught in 40 minutes on the highway leaving town. And uh, he did 25 his sentence was 25 years. And uh, no one believes me, but you can look it up. Uh, that year in 77, he did lead the tour in money. That's amazing. The moving story about the prisoner of war and how golf kind of saved his life. Oh, amazing story. Uh, Air Force pilot, 1967. He's a reconnaissance pilot above North Vietnam. He uh, takes some reconnaissance pictures. He gets shot down. They put him in the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, where John McCain was, and it's a, and I've been there. I've seen this cell. It's six foot by seven foot, no windows, cold, cold, terrible, dank, and he's in there for four years. But in the first month, he finds a stick in the in the exercise yard, hides it in his pant leg, comes back to the uh, cell, guard checks him. Okay, and from that day forward, Donnie, he played golf. 18 holes every day. He'd get up, uh, kiss his wife, get in his car, drive through the town of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where, he's a, where he was a member at the Hattiesburg Country Club. Wow. He'd wave at the grocery guy, his buddy, wave at the lady that ran the used car lot, pull into the club, uh, kid with the shoeshine guy, get to the first tee, three buddies, kidding with them. Then he'd swing that stick. And he was a good college golfer. So uh, in his day, so he uh, he said, let's see, I hit that 245. He'd pace off the 245 in the cell. Wow. Now, let's see. Hattiesburg, number one, that leaves him about 135 yards. For me, that's a knockdown eight. Hits the knockdown eight, paces that off. Always two putt, never made the putt, but never three putt. Always made par. Every hole, kidding with his buddies in the cell. In the cell. Sees Mrs. Havermeyer, hey. Did Phil ever fix that roof? Oh, no. Hope it doesn't rain. Blah, blah, blah. 18 holes. Has lunch with the guys. Gets back in the car. Goes home. Finally, after four years, he's released. Lands in Hattiesburg Airport on a, seat, on a military jet. And they said, would you like to say something to the people? And he's like, what people? And they said, on the tarmac, there's a thousand people waiting for you. He left Hattiesburg at 175 pounds. He was 107 now. He gets to the podium and he just starts weeping because he sees the shoeshine guy yeah. and he sees the grocery guy and he sees the used car lady and he sees his buddies and they're all there to see him. And he said, he said, you guys kept me alive. Saved this life, game, yeah. Yeah. this game saved my life. And he said, so many guys in that prison didn't make it because they could never get outside the cell. Yeah. I got the golf got me out and that stick got me outside the cell. And I find that so true in my life. Like things going bad. If I go out there and play four hours of golf, I kind of forget it. You know, I kind of get over it. And so I, I love golf for so many reasons, but that's one of the major ones. That story blew me away. So you also talk about the 18 most interesting holes, I guess, for lack of a better word in golf. Right. Where, where, the, where the trap on one is monkeys. 
Uh, I, I mean, I'm not a golfer, so I'm I'm going through this stuff, and I'm going like I st- I I got so turned on about so many things about the just the 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 theater of so much of this stuff. There's just beyond the game itself. There's just that as you paint the stories, it's incredible. Well, okay, people are all into pickleball right now, right? Right. But every pickleball court looks the same. Every mm-hmm. tennis court looks the same. But every golf course around the world is different. And in fact, every hole is different from the last hole. So I decided that I would go around the world. And this is back in the days when magazines had money. And they said, sure, do it. And I'm going to play the most unforgettable 18 holes in the world. Well, I did it. You know, played holes in volcanoes, played holes over alligator pits. Um, There was this hole in Malaysia where the monkeys come down and steal your ball. Played with... um, a, a prince in Thailand. Uh, there was just so many hilarious, and amazing, and unforgettable holes. I get back and said, I can't wait to write this. When I got back, the main editor who decided me the story, let me do it, was fired. And the new guy was a tennis guy and didn't want it. So I just kept collecting stories. And it was great to get on free golf. He said, hey, I'm doing this book, 18 most interesting holes in the world. Oh, come play our 15th, you know. So you got to, I got to play free golf all over the world. And so I finally put it in this book. That's amazing. Let's just jump back out of the book for a second. And just I'd love your take on anything that's catching your attention today in sports that's bigger than sports, that's something you're seeing, a trend, a movement. Uh, I'm a big – I'm going to the Nick game tonight. Unfortunately, they're going to lose. I mean, you know, just – I don't like the way – anything catching your attention lately? Let's start with that. I, mean, I think this has been one of the best NBA playoff seasons I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I am not a guy who – okay, I had a sports writer buddy that I came up with. His name was Mike Penner, and we played basketball every Friday at the LA Times, and he was this great guy. And then one day I'm at a book signing, and Mike is dressed like a girl, six foot two, got it, and I'm like, who is this and wants to kiss me? And she said, it's Christine. I'm like, I used to be Mike Penner. Wow. And so Mike became a woman. Uh, and she was working towards the surgery and she was taking all the pills. And she told us her whole story, said from the time she could was three years old, she thought she should be in a go to the women's restroom. Uh, when she got her driver's license, it said female on it. She wept. Um, she always hid a toolbox full of lingerie. Uh, so when, when her when his wife, he would dress up as a girl. And so my wife started helping her pick out shoes and teaching her how to do makeup. And then uh, she was never accepted in the sports world. And uh, she went back to being a guy and then committed suicide. So I'm very, um, I'm for people who realize they're trapped in another person's body, another sex, and they want that to come out. I totally get that. I got to, nephew that's now my niece. It's, that's great. But you don't get to win the swimming meet. Yeah. You don't get at six foot three to win the NCAA 400. Yeah. Because there's a young woman next to you that worked her whole life for this. It's two different worlds. I agree. It's, you know, it's like people tell me, like, I'm a big Caitlin Clark fan, the uh, incredible mm-hmm. Iowa guard that mm-hmm. scores 40 points a incredible, game. Incredible, incredible. People say she she could make it in in uh, in college teams. No, 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 she couldn't. But that doesn't matter. It's it's Venus and Mars. Yeah, Serena Williams would be a decent 
maybe middle of the road college men's player. But that doesn't matter. She's doing what she does with her body, same as Caitlin Clark, and same with that swimmer that got robbed of the 400. So that really bothers me that there's not, well, they, they finally, I think, are starting to realize, yeah. hey, we're all for your, you discovering your yeah, sexuality. No, well, you could say, I'm, I couldn't articulate it better than you are. I am for anybody being who they are, and where, but, but that doesn't translate to sports competition. And, and it just, it, there, there's a right. certain reality. It's not, fair. Yeah. it's not fair to the people who didn't change bodies, you know? So there, I think there are, I think there are three. I think there are three newly crowned men who used to be women who are competing and not doing well at all. But that's fair. But this this giant load of testosterone you still have is not fair against yeah. women. Uh, have you done anything on LeBron? I think he's, of course, lots of things. I think he's a great guy. Uh, he he had a dad in jail. I think he's talked about his mother having uh, a bad drug habit. And look how great he turned out. I was talking about this on the air the other day. This is the guy who we've been, he's been in the public eye since he's 12. Yes. And yes. there has not been one hint of a, the worst thing he ever did was I'm taking my, my, my talents to, he, he did a stupid press conference. That, he does not get the credit for the human then the family he has, the kid, the great kids, the great wife, this guy and all the charitable stuff. I, I was saying, I was ranting on MSNBC about this exact thing yesterday. Exactly. And not only has he never embarrassed himself or his family or do anything, but he started a school in Akron, Ohio, which, yeah, okay, some guys will start a school and throw a check at it. He picks the students. He pays for their tuition through college. If you get in there, in elementary school, you're going to college if you want to go. Uh, he helps pick the teachers. He goes to meetings. This is not just people say, oh, yeah, he wrote a check. He's part of it. And so I, I really love him. I, uh, I'm, well, I'm a Steph Curry guy. I think he's the two of them are just so great for the game. Steph Curry yeah. came with us to Africa and hung nets for my nothing but nets to try to fight malaria and hang bed nets. Who does that as a superstar? And LeBron's that kind of guy. So uh, when people say, ah, he's no Jordan, so what? Nobody right. was Jordan. Right. He's, he's still in the top five of all time and a great, great guy. And by the way, more involved with people's lives than Michael Jordan ever was. Oh, my, my, Michael did not seem to be a very good guy. I mean, I, I never met him. I never covered him. He just obviously a great athlete. But you, you, I think when you compare the two just as people and what their contribution. And, you know, there was you, I was watching the other night. Last night in the Laker game, this, this kid, was it Lonnie Smith? What's his name? Lonnie, uh, who scored Walker. 15. Yeah. And how like LeBron had his armor. You could just wanted to hear what he was saying, almost as like a father. It was just like, that was like, it was not just, hey, great. Like, it was like, you know, he was saying things to that kid that was going to matter to that kid for a long, long time. Well, that fourth quarter, the kid was, the kid had never done anything like that and steals the game from the defending champion. That probably turned the whole tide of the series. We'll see. But yeah. I, I I know what you mean. And back to Jordan, though, you know, I knew him well. And it was just there was no minute that he didn't want to fill with some kind of gamble. Yeah. Some kind of bet, some kind of way he was better than you. Throw the coins against the wall, play cards. For instance, we were all in Barcelona, never came out of his hotel room, flew his three buddies over from high school and they played cards every night. Meanwhile, Charles is discovering yeah. the world of Spain and He's just 
He just only cares about kicking your ass. Yeah. And he, if you were starving and he said, Charles, if I lose this game, I'm not going to be able to eat for three weeks. He would double down. Yeah. He'd take your, your money for the next two months. He's, a, he's just a killer. And um, he, he ruined a few guys that came to the Bulls who just lost their confidence in their shot because he'd, spent, he'd play these $1,000 shooting games and he, he can't be beat. And so, hey, I feel like he's the greatest athlete I've ever covered. I never got to cover Ali. Greatest athlete I've ever covered. But again, not a guy I would ever want my kids to look up to. Who are your other favorite guys just for, on a human level? Derek Jeter, loved him. Um, God, I mean... Um, Dale Murphy used to play for the Atlanta Braves. Sure, of course. Great guy. Brad Faxon on the golf tour. Uh, Andre Agassi is a wonderful guy. Yeah, I got to interview him. Yeah, yeah very good guy. Uh, what? I got to interview, I spent an hour with him. I was really impressed with him also, Agassi. He's such a great guy. My buddy wrote his book, Open. Mm -hmm. It's probably the best sports I've autobiography ever written. And it's because Agassi moved my buddy, J.R. Moringer, into his old house he had with Brooke Shields, still had the house. And every day he'd come and they'd talk for two hours. And that's how you get a great sports autobiography. And so, and JR now just wrote the uh, spare book with, with Prince Harry. And, uh, and he, learned, he learned how to do it from Agassi, who's so open. That's why the book's called Open, because the guy talked about having a meth habit. Yeah. He talked about wearing a, a, a fake mohawk, a faux hawk during his U.S. Open final with Chang. I mean, who does that? That's just real humility. Least favorite, guys? Wow. Least favorite. Jeez. So many. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or put it another way, biggest schmucks. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of schmucks on the golf tour. I mean, Rory Sabatini's not much fun. Tiger's not much fun. Um, God, I hate to, hate to do that. All right, we won't, we won't hold you to that. Hey, Rick Riley, so nice talking to you, man. We're, Rick Riley, one of the nicest, most talented people in the universe. So help me golf. Why we love the game is the new book. Great talking to you. Let's make make sure it's not another seventeen years before we cross paths. Let's do. Let's do another bad TV show. <laughs> Stay well, my friend. Thanks, Donnie.